welcome to the 99 Topics for the CCFP Exam podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brady Bouchard. Good morning. I'm Wilfred Brimley, and I'd like to talk to you for a few minutes about diabetes. Good old diabetes. I grew up listening to that commercial. This week, I chat with Mike Curlew about diabetes. We split this topic into two parts just because it's such an enormous topic to be able to cover in one session. Hope you enjoy. We are going to rock the diabetes world today. Yeah. We are going to rock, totally rock the diabetes world today. And diabetes is fantastic. Big trial just came out, actually. Um, 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 looking at diabetes and hi- actually more hypertension in diabetics yeah. that questions the, the targets that we're using. So hopefully we can just touch on that. Absolutely. Just touch on that. Just, just do a little touch on that, you know, because that was a pretty big trial. You know, they had to stop it early because, you know, of, of, of the results that they were seeing. And it kind of calls into question our, our blood pressure targets that we have for diabetes or, uh, uh um, um, some people with some, um, uh, um, um, our targets that we have for diabetes um, or people with other vascular risk factors about what should we actually be targeting their blood pressure for. Yeah. So, interesting. That study's even more, inter- well, and more controversial too because um, that that was the subgroup analysis. They did all those subgroups and it was a well-run study, but there's a lot of criticism around why they stopped it early because, yeah, there was a difference, but there, yeah. there wasn't, you know, they're not the huge differences that you see in trials where they usually stop it being like, exactly. oh my God, we're killing people. Exactly. Exactly. It's like, oh my God, the results are too good. It's how you define too good, right? Like, and that's a very good point, right? Like, I might say I'm stopping this study early because the results are so profound that if I don't totally tell them right away, based on what I have, people are gonna die unnecessarily, right? Yeah. You know. So it's 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 always a bit of a balance. I heard another criticism too was um how they took the blood pressure, right? Like, I think they use automated BPs to do the blood pressure as well too, versus you know, and you could argue depending on your practice setting, maybe some of the times sometimes the blood pressure would be taken manually, you know what I mean, and stuff. Yeah, um, um, so again, you know, I, I think there was some uh, some some questions on that, but uh, but an interesting uh, interesting to uh, to to touch about. So let's start with diabetes. So diabetes is common, Doctor Bouchard. Is it pretty freaking common? Holy Moses, is it common? Yes. Holy Moses, holy Aaron, holy children, everyone, it is common. Does that make sense? Very, 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 very common. So is it common enough to warrant screening? And the answer is? Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Excellent, right? So again, we all know I'm, I'm so common enough to warrant that. I'm common enough to warrant that I'm screening. Now, the big thing a couple of days, uh, years ago, was one of the options that, you know, we now have as our screening test. And then about a year after that was, you know, we started looking at, you might have heard this thing called the fin risk or the tan risk score, right? Yep. Which kind of uses a, a, a model and uses clinical risk factors to assign, to assign risk of diagnosing diabetes. So where do we leave off? We're talking about diabetes. We're talking about it's common, common enough to warrant screening. We're going to screen for it. As per the Canadian Diabetes Association guidelines of 2013. Perfect. Excellent. And we're basically going to be running through those guidelines, right? And we'll be talking about some, because there's actually been a, a couple, you know, a couple different medication classes that have now come out since then and stuff. So we'll kind of, uh, uh, we'll kind of touch on those as well, right? So again, we know we're dealing with something that's super common. Well, maybe we just define diabetes. So Brady, what is your, Brady, what is your like working definition for diabetes? 
diabetes is, if you want to think of it in layman's terms, is it's, you know, our sugar goes up and down in our bloodstream and we regulate it to some degree. And it's when that regulation goes off the rails. So you end up with too much sugar, which is damaging in your blood. And, you know, you can define it at whatever level you want, but it's essentially, you're just, you're floating in too much sugar. Perfect, perfect. And, and and I also like to throw in, and it's good to have that working definition because that's what you're going to explain through for patients, right? Like we're going to talk about a lot of the details with what our doctors have to know, but it's when we explain our, to our patients so they really, really understand. You know what I mean? When your sugar is high, right, it can cause different organs to dysfunction, right? And you can have complications that are macro, that, that, that affect big vessels or complications that affect small vessels, right? And you have small vessels in certain organs and you have big vessels in other organs. So then, if it's organs like your heart or peripheral vascular disease, or you might have a stroke, that's usually because these things can accelerate atherosclerosis, which cause blockages in vessels, in big vessels, and it can cause a heart attack, a stroke, or you could lose your leg because you don't have any arterial supply in it. Or it can affect small vessels, so it can affect your kidneys, it can affect nerves, and um, it can affect kidneys, it can affect nerves, and it can affect your eye. Crystal clear? That's my, like, working definition, right? That's what I explain to patients, right? You know, I don't get into too, too much of the, you know, at this specific cutoff and at this specific cutoff, even though we will talk about those because people need to know those for their exam. But it's good to have a, 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 a good working definition. Some people have it. There is an organ in our body called the pancreas, and it produces insulin. Some people have it because that organ stops producing the insulin. And then other people get a type of diabetes where their body produces lots of insulin, but for whatever reason, it doesn't listen to the insulin that their body produces. So-called type 2 diabetes, right? And we also have diabetes that can be diagnosed when you are pregnant. Make sure that we throw that in there, gestational diabetes. So that's my good working definition. That's what I would explain to a patient so they really understand that. So they understand my goal is, you, you know, yeah, because patients often ask you, but doc, I don't feel any way. I feel fine. And you're telling me I have diabetes and I feel fine. But then you can tell the patient, but you know what? If this goes unchecked, if this goes unchecked, it starts to affect those organs and cause those macro and microvascular complications. And that's what we're out to pre prevent. Amen, Dr. Bouchard. Amen. Power I, to the I, I, I compare it to hypertension too, because I'm like, you know what? Your blood pressure is sky high. Do you feel any different? And usually they don't. Exactly. And I'm like, you know, we would have never noticed that if we hadn't checked your blood pressure, just like we wouldn't have noticed if we didn't screen you for diabetes. Yeah. And the nice thing is that that's why you're here. We know that uh, treating this, that fixing this can, you know, increase your lifespan. Exactly. Exactly. Excellent. Something like working definition. We're going to delve into all the numbers that people need to meet, people need to know. And so you want to have that working definition. So patients leave your office and they understand the disease process, right? Because oftentimes when you first diagnose people, they feel fine. They don't have any symptoms, right? Yeah, some people are going to be polyuric and polyism, but a lot of people, especially if they come to their physician regularly, they've been, uh, like, they're not going to have really any much or minimal symptoms or no symptoms. And if we're slapping people on medication, we're, we have to say, well, what is our endpoint? You know what? What our endpoint is, is that I want to reduce the chance of badness happening with your heart or badness happening with peripheral vascular disease or badness happening with a stroke or badness happening with your kidney or eyes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. And while we're talking about the screening topic here, yeah. I, I like to beat it home in people's heads because sometimes it's not clear that screening is for asymptomatic individuals only exactly. in any disease. Exactly. So in, when we talk about screening for hypertension, or screening for diabetes or heart disease or whatever, if they have symptoms, you're not, they're not in that screening group anymore. Perfect. And I'm glad you mentioned that. Screening, by definition, the patient is asymptomatic with no other risk factors that would predispose them to be at higher risk of getting diabetes earlier. 
Does that make sense? That'd be whatever age that you decide to screen them for. So that's important, right? If someone has a strong family history, if they have acanthosis nigricans and they come to your office from that, you're not going to screen them. Does that make sense? That's not an asymptomatic person. They're going to they're going to necessitate earlier screening. Does that make sense? So that's a very very important factor. If you have risk factors, you're screening that person basically on diagnosis of that particular risk factor. Amen. So if that happens at 25, they're getting screened at 25, right? Yep, absolutely. Perfect. So we have screening and stuff. So what does the CDA recommend for screening, right? Kind of predominantly two approaches. Exactly. So they have a couple things in there. So you can start, I mean, if you want to do it on easy mode, you can start screening at age 40 years. Perfect. Screening every three years in those that are high risk by either the can risk or fin risk scores. Perfect. And then screening earlier or more frequently if there's other risk factors that fall outside of that can risk score, where, which really what they're saying is is if your clinical suspicion is there. Exactly, exactly. Perfect. Yeah. So I like it. I love it, right? So you have the option. I'll tell you what I prefer to do, right? All those options are probably equivalent. I really like the can risk and thin risk model, right? Because what it does is it kind of sets you up to look at the patient. Those are patient risk factors. I'm not going to go through every one, you know what I mean? And stuff because people can yep. download that. I mean, we can have a link to the show notes so they can actually see. But what you actually do is you, um, based on certain patient factors, those types of things, you can assign risk. And then that risk can warrant your screening interval and your decision to screen. Amen? And you can do that. So you can, ass you can assess people into mild or, or, or low versus intermediate versus high risk. So your low risk person, you're not going to need to screen. Does that make sense? Your screening interval is going to be long. Your high risk person, they might need to be checked every single year. Exactly. And the nice thing I like about the di topic of diabetes in general is the Canadian Diabetes Association. Just the best website out of any uh, disease organization or medical organization I've seen. Well designed and lots of patient resources. And if you Perfect. look, there's like the can risk score for clinicians um, set up as a nice like PDF questionnaire. But there's also a nice interactive can risk tool for patients that they can do. Right, exactly. Um, anytime they want. And it'll tell them whether they're high risk or not and whether they should see their doctor. So I love it. Perfect and stuff, and it does. It has a lot of those, um, um, a lot of those tools that are uh, are, are at our um, uh, um, um, disposal or so. You know what I mean? It has a, a lot of those, uh, a lot of those uh, tools that are um, at our at our disposal and stuff. So we can either do it at age forty, right, or we can use a validated risk stratification tool. Does that make sense? That's going to stratify people according to low, intermediate, or high based on certain patient factors so you get your patient into that risk strata and it's going to tell you whether you screen them and the interval of screening as well too amen amen and we'll put a we'll put a nice little link there on the show notes so people can actually browse that assessment tool right and yeah, it's pretty absolutely. easy to easy to use i don't want to beat over the bush i don't want to use our 40 minutes on that right yeah absolutely perfect perfect excellent so those are our options for us so in terms of diagnosing people with diabetes. So we say, okay, it's common. It's common to warrant screening. We can use our fin risk, our can risk. If you have patient risk factors um, 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 that warrant it at an earlier age of 40, then you're going to screen for that. You're going to use your can risk, your fin risk, or at age um, uh, at age 40, provided that they don't have any other risk factors. So what does the CDA talk about in terms of that screening test of choice now? That's why I love the CDA, because they say, Perfect. use any test you feel like. Mm-hmm. And, I, Excellent. and I, I love that because whatever you're comfortable with, whatever you feel is good for the patient, they're Perfect. realistic about the fact that different people will get diagnosed different ways and they're all, they're all valid. Excellent. Excellent. And one of our ways that we have of diagnosing things, so we still can do it by the good old fasting plasma glucose, right? So again, and keep in mind too, you can't just need one reading. 
but you need two. Does that make sense? Unless you're having lots of symptoms or in florid DKA, does that kind of jive? You need exactly. to have two. You need to have a confirmatory reading, right? Because yeah. no test is 100% spermic. So you can have a fasting plasma glucose greater than your wonderful value of seven. Or, and this came out a couple of years ago and stuff, and I've been using this a lot more because you can take this in consideration without um, um, fasting an A1C greater than 66.5% in adults. Is that crystal clear? Or you could do it based on a two, uh, on a on a on a um um oral glucose tolerance uh, test. That's a seventy five gram, your good old two hour special and stuff. And if it's greater than eleven point one, you got yourself some diabetes. You're gonna repeat that as well too. Or if you have a random greater than eleven point one, does that make sense? Then you can diagnose the per the uh, person with diabetes, right? So you got to know those numbers because they ask you them on the family medicine exam. <laughs> exactly, and that comes up, especially the random one. I find comes up more often than not, especially in our population here. Um, in the emergency department, because you're just doing a random sugar for whatever reason, for whatever they came in, um, and you pick up the bad diabetics that way, for sure, if it's a little over 11.1. And the other thing I'd say for that con a confirmatory test, they don't actually mention it in there if you have to repeat with the same one or a different one. But I, in my mind, I'd rather repeat with a different one just yeah. just in case, you know, yeah. if, they're, if their sugar pattern or the way their, their blood sugars are you know, is high on one and low on the other, then you can have a little bit more of a think about it. But Right, right. And the exactly. other thing is that if you're going to confirm with an A1C, remember that A1C only flips over every three months because that's yeah. how fast our red blood cells replenish. So if you do an A1C that's, you know, in the diabetic range, if you want to do a confirmatory A1C, well, really, you need to wait three months and you miss three months of treatment there. So Exactly, exactly. No, 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 that's uh, that's very, very true and stuff. I think it's important to, um, um, to identify as well, too, that, you know, this term pre-diabetes they put in there, right? Like to say yeah. that there are states that are associated with higher risk that we know, and there's big studies on this fishing, that predominantly those interventions are lifestyle, lifestyle, lifestyle folks, right? Um, uh, um, um, and it's important to define those terms, right? So you have, you know, impaired fasting glucose, right? So we know what fasting glucose, about seven is diabetic, right? Impaired fasting glucose is between 6.1 and 6.9, or six and seven, right? We have impaired glucose tolerance, right? That's usually between 7.8 and 11, right? And then your A1C is considered pre-diabetic or impaired, you know what I mean? when it's between six and six and a half, right? So these terms are important to know because these are a quote-unquote, and I'm glad the CDA talked about this. They talked about it specifically in terms of a pre-diabetic state, right? That is kind of like, that is kind of like, wow, we're getting a pre-diabetic state and we know that lifestyle interventions can be very effective in this state, right? To reduce your chances of progressing to diabetes, right? So I think it's important for patients to understand that as well too. This is like, you're about to head off the cliff and this is the sign a kilometer before you head off the cliff saying, warning, cliff, right? So right. You're so close to diabetes that you really need to make some changes. Right. Um, preferably without medications at this stage. Exactly. And maybe you can stave off the diabetes. Perfect. And by far the biggest lifestyle intervention is weight loss. Perfect. I've actually done studies to say if you can lose like 5 to 10%, like you can do a lot to reverse things, right? Like, yeah. That's and pretty you can cure your diabetes. Right? Yeah. There are studies in uh, in Australia when I trained there because they have a much higher rate of uh, gastric bypass surgery exactly. as, as a first or second line in diabetes that uh, it, if they want to go for that and they do go for it, uh, you essentially cure their diabetes exactly. because it's the weight loss that matters. That's, exactly. that's why 
that's the pathogenesis of their disease. Perfect, perfect. And it's very good that you mentioned that, that gastric bypass is an option. Does that make sense? Like, it is a treatment option for diabetes, for weight loss and subsequent diabetes, right? So that's, uh, that's, uh, that's, I'm very, very glad you mentioned that. And, you know, again, too, we have to talk about this as well, too, and this is just something you need to memorize for the exam, our good friend's metabolic syndrome, right? You know what I mean? And stuff. So remember, metabolic syndrome, remember a whole bunch of different international societies define metabolic syndrome, right? And there's different definitions of things. Um, I just tend to like to go with the one that that, that, that we use in, in Canada and stuff. So remember, it has this idea of waist circumference, and there's different um, uh, um, cutoffs based on ethnicity and gender, right? Um, it usually has this concept of an elevated triglyceride level. The number you have to keep in mind is about 1.7. Your, your HDL is a bit low. Does that make sense? So usually one, under 1 in males, under 1.3 in females. Your BP is a touch high. Does that make sense? So um, um, the one that I'm looking at here, one BP greater than 130, or, or diastolic greater than 85, and you have an elevated glucose. Does that make sense? So greater than about 5.6, right? So not not quite there, but, it, but maybe slightly elevated or so, right? You get three or more of these things, and you can diagnose a person with metabolic syndrome, right? So um, I think that's important for us to define. When we talk about high cholesterol, this comes up as well, too. And there's many different, you have to be careful because there's many different definitions. The Americans have a definition. You know, Europe has a definition. You just want to stick with a consistent definition. And I would use the one that we use in Canada, right? So we know what uh, what we're, um, what we're, um, what we're, um, what we're uh, what we're talking about, or so, right? Um, 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 yeah, we 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 because we know that people with metabolic syndrome, if they don't have diabetes, they're at higher risk of developing diabetes. Does that make sense? Um, um, so that's the um, that's the um, that's the thing that we can talk about, or so. But just to define some points, we can get all the numbers out of it, right? Yeah, exactly. And that yeah, that's why you want to make that diagnosis because I mean, essentially, the more tick boxes on the metabolic syndrome they have, the more likely they are going to finish ticking the boxes. So Exactly. Um, you know, if you have hypertension, you are be more likely to have diabetes, not because they're correlated specifically, but because you're hypertensive because you're unhealthy. Exactly, exactly. No, no, no. It's, it's uh, so I just want to backtrack a little. Like for some of these people with extra risk factors, let's flesh that out a little bit more here, right? Like people that you might choose to to treat uh, um, uh, um to screen let's say a little bit learn early what are what are going to be some conditions that make your spider sense start to tingle dr bouchard yeah so there's i mean there's lots of risk factors i think i i hope some of them are intuitive for clinicians obviously any symptoms specifically of diabetes right uh, you would consider as a risk factor for the development of diabetes so they're peeing too much they're lethargic um they're really thirsty obviously yeah um if they have a strong family history of it um, especially first-degree relatives with it. Perfect! Age, certain ethnicities. If you've had gestational diabetes, you mentioned that before. I think the number is about 20% of gestational diabetics will go on to develop uh, full-blown type 2 diabetes. It might even be higher than that, but it's you know it's a fairly high number. Exactly, exactly. So definitely is a risk factor for that. And I like to always mention the one, too, that people tend to forget about, and that's one, right? Like, um, if you've had a previous macrosomic infant, you know what I mean? And stuff like you had a big baby, you might think, okay, maybe this person wasn't screened in pregnancy, whatever. That's a that's a, a, risk, uh, um, a risk factor as well, too, you know? Of course, if you have documented, hi, I just came from a cardiologist, and he said that I just got a massive MI. That's a macrovascular. Uh, that's a macrovascular manifestation. If you already have those macro or microvascular um, uh, manifestations documented, then that's a, a definite um, a risk factor as well, right? If you have other definite cardiac risk factors like hypertension, does that make sense? Um, 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 like dyslipidemia, that's a risk factor for diabetes. You're going to want to screen those people earlier. Does that make sense? Um, other endocrinologic stuff, right? PCOS. 
People yeah, always forget about that, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and you know what I was like? H- chronic infections are chronic inflammatory conditions. That's something. So HIV infection is listed as a risk factor, right? And remember too, sometimes it's not necessarily the HIV, but the drugs used to treat the HIV. Does that make sense? They've been associated with dyslipidemias and that type of that type of thing. Psychiatric disorders and being on antipsychotics, right? So if psychiatric disorders can be associated with them as well, but being on an antipsychotic can be. We know that certain atypical antipsychotics are horrible for metabolic syndrome. So again, you know, it's, it's not, um, it's not, uh, 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 um, there. So you want to think about just to flesh out some of the risk factors that we always, I always find myself, I always forget about those types of things. You know what I mean? And stuff and you want to, you want to kind of make sure that you do, that's going to warrant screening at a, at a, at a, at a, at an earlier, um, at an earlier age. And probably the worst drug for diabetes if taken chronically is, uh, the steroids. Eh? Yeah. Ster- oh, of course. You are so sexy, Dr. Brady. <laughs> Smart is the new sexy. Did you see that? I almost forgot about the biggest drug that caused oh, oh, that's all right. You had such a good list otherwise. It was good. You are so... Folks, Smart is the new sexy, and Brady Bouchard <laughs> is ridiculously sexy. Do not edit that out, Dr. Bouchard. I want okay. everybody to know that. <laughs> okay, I'll leave it in just for you, Mike. Exactly. Everybody in Saskatchewan already knows. Now everybody in Canada is going to know, right? <laughs> there you go. I'm reading from the same list you are, so it's not that smart. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So we're ready to rock on, right? Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. So going through going through our guideline a little bit further here. So, you know, we can link these in the show notes and stuff like that, too. It has little nice little tables talking about, like, what... And the important thing to realize is that once you make the diagnosis of diabetes, that's great. But it also wants you to flesh out these pre-diabetic states, right? Either you're fasting, you're impaired fasting glucose or impaired glucose tolerance. Does that make sense? So, um, uh, um, so usually what happens is if you're fasting plasma glucose, um, um, if it's, if it's, if you do a fasting, um, or you do an A1C and it's not the diabetic range, but it's in that pre-range of kind of 6.6 to 7 or 6 to 4 if it's an A1C, you want to do a glucose tolerance test. Is that crystal clear? And then they'll have specific, so, so, cause you can have, you want to be able to diagnose, is this person have impaired fasting glucose or impaired glucose tolerance? Can you call them pre-diabetes and kind of say, whoa, if we can do some lifestyle stages, you know, we may be able to, 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 to reduce the chance of badness happening. Does that make sense? Absolutely. There's also some evidence that people have lower um, um, fasting plasma glucose. So the cutoff they use is like 5.6 to 6. Does that make sense? And they have risk factors that you may want to consider doing these other glucose tolerance uh, 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 um, uh, um, tests as well. Because they, in that group, they may have, um, they may have, um, they may have uh, prediabetes. And it's great. And what is the predominant treatment for prediabetes? It's for lifestyle. That's what we have the most evidence for lifestyle lifestyle modification we're going to blast through lifestyle um I'm in a, but i want to emphasize that lifestyle is is a proven therapy for pre-diabetes especially so that's where you want to you make sure you, you take advantage of your motivational interviewing does that make sense you know yes they studied metformin yes they studied um tzds but and, and they might help a little bit in reducing the rates of progression does that make sense but what we know works a lot better is lifestyle does that make sense? So it's not to say that we wouldn't talk to our patients about consideration for some of these um, um, other agents, but keep in mind, lifestyle intervention is where you want to go. Absolutely. Perfect. Oh my God, right? So again, Brady, so we talked about screening, we talked about that. Okay, so let's say we talked about the pre-diabetic stage and risk factors. So what are we going to do now, bro? Are we going to talk about our wonderful thing of treatment of diabetes? So you have somebody with diabetes, what are you going to do? 
Oh, this is the bread and butter of family medicine. My gut break. I am speechless, folks. I'm speechless at Dr. Bush. Dr. Bush, this is the bread and butter. It Hopefully totally it's is. low glycemic index bread. No. But I'm bummed. There's no sugar in the, well in the bread, I guess. There you go. There no, you go. No. There's no sugar in it. Exactly. It, it's it's whole grain bread and exactly. And but then again, it doesn't matter butter. because it's all just medications, right? But a bump. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely not. So we're gonna be talking about some of our treatments, and you know what? Before we get a bunch, remember we always have two types of treatments. We have our pharmacologic and our good friends, the non-pharmacologic. I'm gonna start about the non-pharmacologic stuff first because, bro, it's important. Does that sound okay? And I want to really bang those messages home that it's important, right? As doctors, we love slapping people on medications. I'm not saying medications are bad, but you really want to get people using a lot of the non-pharmacologic stuff because it works. And it's, in a lot of cases, better than the medication. The less drugs, the better. Amen, brother. There you go. There you go. Excellent. So what type of lifestyle modifications are we going to be recommending for people with diabetes and potentially for people with, with pre-diabetes? We touched on it before, but weight loss is by far the biggest one. Perfect. Get people to lose weight. 5 to 10%. Great. You can lose 5 to 10%. You can do a lot for improving diabetes control and do a lot for changing. And, and, and the other thing, you're going to lose weight by watching your diet, right? You're going to lose weight by exercise. What did I say? Exercise. Fantastic, right? That has proven macrovascular risk factor reduction. You understand that? That has proven reduction in itself, right? Exactly. Aerobic exercise, 150 minutes a week. Perfect. Excellent. Just to give you something to, just to give you something. So we have exercise, right? Diet, right? Is going to be important as well, too. It'll talk about fiber cutoffs, even though fiber has been getting a real hit and stuff. And, and supplementation has been getting sort of a real um, um, hit and stuff. We don't have nearly the type of evidence that we probably did before, you know what I mean? Or, or what we thought we did before and stuff. But again, who can help you with that is your dietitian. What did I say, eh? Dietitian. As part of a multidisciplinary team. Because you're dealing with a chronic condition, you know that if you get all these specialties together, you're going to be in much, much better shape. Yeah. I think you could probably just get through the CCFP exam by saying multidisciplinary team over and over again. That, if you do that, you'll be well on your way. And you know where these things can come up, folks? These things come up in suits, right? Because, like, yeah. you're like hi, I want to turn this person on blind for right. You know what I mean? Like, versus, that'll get you one mark, right? But, like, make it and, and think about it. Suppose the person just says, I don't want to take any medications under any circumstances, and you're trying all your fabulous, like, like motivational interviewing, you're pulling things out of your back pocket, nothing is working. It doesn't mean, well, I guess you're just going to have a stroke. No, you don't say that, right? Like, you're going to say there's other things that you can do as well, right? And as part of the management, it's not all, it's not all medication, right? Lifestyle modification is a big, big important part of, we mentioned it, diet and exercise. There's cutoffs that Dr. Bro um, uh, um, Bouchard mentioned, get a multidisciplinary team in there, a team of multiple disciplines, including a dietitian that can help you with things like working on glycemic indexes, what types of food you're going to be eating. What else do you want as part of that multidisciplinary team, Dr. Bouchard? Uh, I love my diabetic nurse educators. Oh my God. I love diabetic nurse educators. They are fantastic because we're dealing with medications. We're dealing with navigating through the healthcare system. They can, we're dealing with helping people potentially taking insulin. And what, how do I inject this again? What? I have to check my gluten. What? 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 Excellent, exactly. right? So they can help with a lot of that process and stuff, right? And patient education is so important, right? Your adherence to therapy is I mean, if your patient understands what's happening and do they feel empowered to manage it. Does that make sense? Exactly. And you got to be realistic. Like, I mean, I take as much time with patients as I can, but diabetes after the diagnosis, A, it's a chronic disease that they have to grapple with in this moment. 
But then it's a big deal to try and treat it and to manage it. And somebody else has way more time than me and probably more skill or certainly more experience in talking at, at a patient level with it. So I love perfect. the diabetic nurse education. Perfect. Perfect. Excellent. I don't like social workers part of my, hey, we're going to put you on this new brand new expensive medication. I, You know what I mean? And stuff. Or we're going to put you on this brand new thing. Or we want to get you some of these. You understand to be able to access resources in the community. Does that make sense? Um, um, physiotherapy. So lots of different, different um, allied health um, that can be part of your multidisciplinary team to really make sure that we're doing comprehensive diabetes management. It's not just slapping people on metformin. Not saying that's not important, but that's by definition that's not all it is is that crystal clear so lots of lifestyle uh, lots of lifestyle stuff um, uh, um um the good dr bouchard excellent so we're gonna make sure and remember things too folks probably not a good time to take up marlboro cigarettes you know i've never smoked maybe i'll start at 30 does that make sense but you know you don't you understand you know maybe i'll i'll start you know drinking excessively does that make sense so alcohol to low risk guidelines you want to remember that as well too that's going to be part of lifestyle management as well and they talk about the famous dash diet right dietary approaches to stop hypertension um um, um low cholesterol diet which has kind of been in the in the you know where they question whether or not that actually reduces outcomes yes or no you know what i mean um um but anyway uh, um 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 something definitely to consider perfect Awesome. So management. Pharmacologic stuff. Dun, dun, dun. Glycemic control. Perfect. So the thing, I, th I think the best way to think about it for the exam too is it, there's a couple different categories in, in management. Right. And we, we can delve into each one of them. But so you're managing sugar. That's obviously the biggest and, and most you know, important category. You're also worried about vascular protection. Right. Because diabetes is a risk factor. Um, and contributes to other diseases that aren't diabetes. Yeah. Um, and then there's the patient self-management part of it too. So right. all three of those you kind of have to to hit on. Perfect, perfect. And and I think you mentioned a really good good point. Like the Canadian Diabetes Association, they have this really good card. And it's it's like a it's like your what you need to know about diabetes in like a page. You know, it's it's the night before the exam, and you realize you know everything about you know, and but you know nothing about diabetes. What are you going to do? They have this really really good card, and they talk about that. Have to think about global risk factor reduction, um, uh, um, lifestyle modification, hypertension control, dyslipidemia control. Does that make sense? Managing vascular risk factors is part of it as well, right? I think it calls it the smart mnemonic, right? Uh, so you really want to think about in terms of global vascular protection. And it's not just, hey, it's like a limbo bar. And all we have to do is just look at our A1C and if we're good, we're great. And we don't have to consider anything else. It's about global um, um, vascular protection, right? Um, 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 uh, um, a global sort of more, um, more, uh, more vascular um, uh, protection stuff right so we look at a1c um, um before you know seven percent it actually is really good now it says that listen look at the patient right like if the patient's really old they have risk factors of they're not standing very well they hypoglycemia could make them really really sick you know what i mean and stuff you may have to consider a higher target up to 8.5 could be okay does that make sense you know maybe if somebody's really good you know it, it might uh, decrease the rates of of um of, of, of certain microvascular complications and stuff maybe a lower target down to six might be okay but for the vast majority of people you're going to be around seven right but you want to look at the patient right if they don't look if they look like hypoglycemia is going to kill them you know if they have a limited life expectancy if being on lots of medications to drive that a1c now is probably going to result in badness then it gives you some wiggle room does that make sense where you don't have to drive them down right yep and in young otherwise healthy patients who are motivated a uh, target of 6.5 even 
Perfect. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Who, who can tolerate the medications. Hey, maybe they, they're young. They have their whole life ahead of them. You know what I mean? It may take down the rates of certain microvascular complications, having that lower A1C target. So, we'll, you know, you really have to look at the patient and stuff, right? And the specific targets, for example, for fasting plasma glucose and, and, and postprandial glucoses and stuff like that. You, um, 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 you know, just reading this and stuff, you know, it's four to seven and then five to 10 and stuff for a two hour postprandial glucose and stuff. And then, uh, um, um, if you're not a target, you want to, you know, if it's, if it's, uh, it's, it becomes five to 10 or five to eight and stuff. So again, you know, just, these are just numbers. We'll put them in the guideline. You just need to know them for your exam, right? So there's targets of your A1C and then there's pre there's pre, there's AM targets and then there's postprandial targets. They have to be in mind as well too. And those targets change slightly depending on if you're in control. Yes or no. Exactly. And that four to seven target for uh, morning sugar comes into play too with my kind of foolproof initiation of insulin method that we'll talk about and I have in the study notes as well. Perfect. Perfect. I love anything foolproof. The yeah. Brady Bouchard foolproof method, right? Yeah. Well, because again, the biggest thing I found as a resident and that I definitely find in med students is everybody's uh, fairly confident with the oral antihypoglycemics yeah. and they're fine titrating insulin, but they're terrified of initiating insulin. Very good. You know what? And you might go through your entire residency without ever starting anybody from insulin. Like you might refill the script. Hi, I need a refill of my Lantus. And you're like, I don't know what the hell I would actually start this off. That's what you're thinking in your mind. Does that exactly. make sense? So yeah. I think that's really good that we touch on that, right? Because that's a very, very important point, right? To initiate somebody on insulin therapy, how are you going to go about doing that, right? How are you going to, you know, you're, you're, how are you going to lose your insulin virginity? Does that make sense? Like not just, you know, not just, you know, refill the script, you know, hey, you're on 30 units of 3070, great, here you go. I'll see you in a month, you know what I mean? That type of yeah. thing, or they'll see you in a month, not me, right? <laughs> exactly. So if we're talking about glycemic control, that that 8.5% uh, A1C cutoff, I like that they repeat numbers because it's easier to keep in your head. So yeah. 8.5 is a target in elderly frail patients, yeah. but it's also your cutoff when you're initiating uh, glycemic control uh, after the diagnosis to decide what agents they should be on and at what time. Because if it, if their A1C is above 8.5, they need something more than just metformin. Exactly. And if they're less than 8.5, you can try metformin and in all of those categories, uh, lifestyle interventions as well. That it, goes without saying. Exactly, exactly, and stuff, right? Yeah. And it's and that's exactly yeah. what the what the guideline is saying, right? Like you're kind of risk stratifying based on your A1C, right? Like, you know, if you're under 8.5, you get some lifestyle, lifestyle modification might be okay for a couple months. You know what I mean? And then you're going to reassess, yep. right? If you're not, if you're above 8.5, you know what you need to start probably in addition to lifestyle interventions, you're probably going to be starting metformin right away and consider using another agent of a different class as well too. Perfect, perfect. And then you're depending on your target. If you're at target, Great. Continue. If you're not at target, up your dose of medication or add a medication of a different class. Exactly. Perfect. Yeah. And then uh, metformin stays on board throughout the whole thing, assuming Perfect. they can tolerate it. It's a medication that's proven to work well with or without insulin. And with the it's other the agents. one medication. It's that we maybe, because remember, why do we give people medication? We give people, we do interventions because as doctors, we want people to 
live longer or feel better. That's the reasons why we do interventions, right? It's because we want people to live longer. Hi, this is going to make you live longer or it's going to make you feel better. Does that make sense? For most of the medications we have for diabetes, we don't have any mortality data. Does that make sense? You know, sure, this medication may help you, may help your A1C go down. You know what I mean and stuff? But as far as mortality data in terms of reducing chances of macrovascular dysfunction, for a lot of them, we're not there yet, right? The only one with probably a bit of evidence is metformin. So that's why they put it there, right? So at least we're making sure that we're giving you something in addition to lifestyle modification that has proven benefit but it's going to reduce your chance of badness happening absolutely perfect Beautiful. so give me some classic my friend so metformin it's just like uh some of the other chronic diseases we just keep on adding classes every year it's going to become progressively harder to be a oh family medicine God. resident or physician exactly <laughs> when i went i hate this i you know i, I finished residency what eight years, almost nine years ago and stuff. And I, I can now use that phrase, when I was a resident, you know what I mean, and stuff? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> when I was a resident, you know what I mean? Sex was dirty and the air was clean. No, was <laughs> right? right? No, no, no. When I was a resident, we only had like two or three classes of medication. But now there's a lot more. Does that make sense? Because we've had um, um, development a lot more classes of medication. So let's go through metformin. It's a bi-benign. How does it work? It, it's not to reduce, it's not to increase insulin sensitivity. It may help hepato, uh, um, um, uh, um, so it, it's thought to be sort of an insulin, act as an insulin sensitizer or so. You know what I mean? And stuff. Right. It, it may affect hepatic gluconeogenesis. But again, what the complications be careful with. You gotta remember too, this stuff can affect your kidneys. It can cause the elusive lactic acidosis. You exactly. understand? So again, you know what I mean? Um, but again, probably the only agent that we have a little bit of evidence for that actually reduces the chance of macrovascular dysfunction, right? So that's why they slap it right at, right at, um, uh, um, for most people with diabetes, right? Yeah. Perfect. And not trivially, it's got a long history of use, so it's got more evidence and it's also cheap. Love it. Cheap. Cheap and experience. Good stuff. Can we use it in pregnancy? Oh. That's a, oh, that's a, that's a touchy subject around here. That's a very, very touchy subject around here, right? Now, what, what you have to do is, our, our still our first-line agent in pregnancy, we have to talk about that, is insulin. Does that make sense? Because we know that. doesn't mean that metformin, because remember, we use that for PCOS, right? So, remember, metformin and glyburide, what you don't want to do is say, oh, hi, do you want to take insulin? Absolutely not. Well, I guess we're just going to do nothing. Does that make sense? That's the wrong answer, right? Like, insulin is still your first-line agent, but metformin and glyburide can be options, in, but they're second-line options. Does that make sense? Yeah, fair enough. Perfect. And there's a whole bunch of agents that just really aren't used anymore, to be honest. So, like, like uh, acarbose. Acarbose. Exactly. These alpha glucosidase inhibitors, you know, they, they basically, you know, they, 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 you know, it's one of these things that prevents, you know, luminal absorption or luminal absorption of, 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 uh, uh, of, uh, in your gut and stuff of, of, of some disaccharides. So you get fewer monosaccharides and your glucose stays down a little bit. The problem is really there's side effects and they're very weak agents, right? Yeah. And the big side effect is that they make you fart like crazy. Does that yeah, make exactly. Sense? Cause you're and, just you know, feeding your, feeding your gut, uh, bacteria tons of sugar. So. There you go. There you go. So they can cause flat. Um, I've only actually used it once and it did not go very well in a patient and I learned pretty rapidly not to try that again. You know, <laughs> yeah. So, um, um, so yeah, exactly. You know, lots of, uh, lots of GI side effects and stuff, but again, an agent that it can, and tends to be very weaker, right? Yeah. Give me another class. Oh, the, the new ones that are all the rage right now, the incretin agents. So the oh DPP4s and the GLP1s. The GLP1 and the DPP4 inhibitors. 
excellent. In fact, the incretin pathway, right? These things cause kind of um, um, incretins, which lower your blood, your, your, which can lower your blood sugar. So they either are soluble in cretin itself the glucagon-like peptide that we give you that you have to inject into yourself, or they affect the breakdown of the incretins, right? Like the DPP-4. Dipeptidyl peptidase 4 is an enzyme that breaks down incretins, right? So if I turn that off, then more incretins stick around, right? And your glucose stays, your, the glucose lowering effects um, uh, um, of the incretins stick around for longer, right? So again, there's classes of DPP-4 inhibitors, and there's agents that are, 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 um, are, are incretin analogs. Yeah. Perfect. And the one thing to mention in there is, although they're expensive and they're new and I wouldn't use them first line, Victoza. Um, As an indication for weight loss. Exactly. With Victoza is what? I don't, I'm sorry. I don't speak brand name. <laughs> You're like, damn it. Oh, my God. So liraglutide does have, it's one of our few weight loss indicators, like, because before we had essentially nothing or we had stuff that killed people, right? Um, um, that cause you to lose, lose, lose weight or give you horrible steatorrhea. Does that make sense? Which always goes well, right? Um, um, so that's one of our first agents. So liraglutide does have an indication for weight loss. And one of our issues, one of our top 100 is weight loss. So I'm sure we'll get to that in time. But yeah, liraglutide. I remember now too, they have new formulations of this stuff that actually can last a full week and stuff. So it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. You know what I mean? So instead right, of giving so that's new to me, cause we don't have drug coverage up here for that. So we have Neither zero, I. zero never, patients. I've never used, uh, yeah, I've never, I've only used a, 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 a liraglutide on a couple of occasions. And the, 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 the I think it's duraglutide or something like that. It's a newer agent and stuff. And it basically, instead of giving your injection a couple times per day or once a day, you give it once a week, right? So, because that was really the thing. If you're giving yourself injections, then it can kind of go from there. So, yeah. perfect. Oh boy. Oh boy. So give me another class. Uh, how about the sulfonylureas? Perfect. Excellent. So these are insulin secretagogues. They basically tell your pancreas to make more insulin. Fantastic. Right? Yeah. They're cheap. Uh, they work well. There's some risk of hypoglycemia with them. Glycoside less than glyburide. So I see that Excellent. used a lot more. Exactly. You're not seeing too, too much. Uh, you're not seeing too, too much glyburide anymore. You do have it. You know, there are people that have been on it for years and stuff. But yeah, glycoside is, tends to be what, uh, and I think glycoside is once a day versus glyburide, which is mostly twice a day. So there's probably those compliance issues as well. Yeah. And I think a fairly standard approach I see, uh, at least where I practice with most physicians, is uh, metformin is a first line agent. Uh, yeah. Glycoside is a second line agent. Maybe yeah. maybe one of the DPP-4s or GLP-1s if they can afford it. Um, exactly. And then insulin. Exactly. In that order. Yeah. In that order. And stuff. Yeah. Perfect. And that gives us, remind us too, to put down this as a class. Insulin is a class of medication, right? Absolutely. So just think about it. Like people it, always put It's the definitive class. Yeah. Yeah. They always forget that when they ask this question. Insulin is a class of medication, so um, just keep that uh, just keep that in mind as well. Now, what are what else is the another class here? They're called TZDs. You don't hear them too too used much anymore. Yeah, exactly. Everybody got terrified of this uh, yeah. bladder cancer risk. Yeah, bladder cancer, osteoporosis, the fact that one of them was potentially associated with heart failure. They did other studies that said, well, maybe not. You know what I mean and stuff. But I think people kind of got like fearful you know there's two of them there's pedoglitazone and rosiglitazone you know what i mean and stuff so um these agents were great at lowering your a1c they were fantastic the problem is they had all these other side effects now they've questioned some like there was initial ones initial studies that came out with one of them um uh, um 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 you might remember a drug you probably not gonna remember this a drug called avandia back in the day that was rosiglitazone and it's such a you know maybe increasing cardiac events and chf and stuff now subsequent when they looked at things at the bass it you know it may not have been as bad as we might have thought you know what i mean so uh, um um but i think there's just people are just afraid to use them and stuff because of that so gotcha fair enough yeah. 
Excellent. Now, what's another class, Dr. Bouchard? Yeah, your brand new ones, your SGLT2s. Exactly. It's a yeah. sodium glucose transporter inhibitor. So basically what it does is that, you know, sodium and glucose kind of co-transport together and stuff. So this basically causes you to pee out more glucose, essentially, exactly. right? Um, this, and these are the glyphosins, as they're called, right? Like yeah. the, the, that's their class of their medication. So they work at the renal tubule to help you pee out a lot more glucose. So that's essentially how they, um, that's essentially how they, um, uh, essentially how they work. Very, very new class of medication. They've only been around for about a year now and stuff like that too. So I have Actually, no experience with actually using yeah. these things. Apparently, um, they work quite well, but they're quite expensive, they of course, because they're, they're new. They're quite expensive. And then and you have to know, think of the side effects of getting a lot of sugar in your urine, too. So exactly. it's the, the UTI, UTIs. yeast yeah. infection. Yeah, you got yeah. to be aware of that, too. But you need to know it for the because it is a, uh, a, uh, a medication uh, that we can use. Great. And I want to I remind everybody, too, we're going we're gonna, to, we're gonna, you know, um, remember gestational diabetes, you need to know those cutoffs. I just want to tell people right now, right? Like gestational diabetes, you need to know the cutoffs. They're in the guideline, right? The 7.8, 8.1, whatever, you know, for the glucose tolerance test, you need to know those cutoffs. And still how we treat um, gestational diabetes is predominantly lifestyle first, and then it's your first line age. Uh, it's lifestyle. If you're not meeting your specific target and they're in the guideline, your next agent is insulin, right? So that we talk about gestational diabetes, right? Um, 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 that's a, a point I just wanted to to, uh, to mention and keep in mind excellent table in there and maybe we'll have a, when we have a little bit more time next time about hyperglycemic emergencies dka and hhs right that's yeah. part of diabetes as well too dealing with the hyperglycemic emergency and when we do some critical care podcasts we'll talk about that too but you want to make sure you have a, br a browse of that and stuff before i forget i wanted to touch on that before i forget absolutely good point yeah um, and then just to finish it off, there's uh, the weight loss agent Orlistat that the CDA sticks in there. I don't think that's used much at all. Exactly. Um, really. And uh, ripaglinide, um, which, again, I almost never see as an insulin secretagogue. Exactly. Exactly. It's kind of in that class of secretagogue, like glyburide and stuff. So yeah. perfect. Yeah, that's 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 our agents. Excellent. Did we just do it? We should we should have part two. No worries. Yeah, no, we'll we'll do part two because I want to talk about starting insulin. I want to talk about self monitoring, vascular protection. Exactly. This, this is a huge topic. That is a massive topic. So you know what? We can't do this justice in just one day. We have to do that. So maybe we'll make a plan. We'll talk about insulin. We'll talk about um, two things. We'll talk about starting people on insulin and managing the hyperglycemic emergency because those are important topics. And you know what? We're going to talk a little bit about hyperglycemia, uh, um, um, diabetes in kids and diabetes in pregnancy. Does that sound okay? We'll Sounds do it in lovely. Parts. Let's make it, make it happen, Mike. Let's make it happen. We'll see you. As effervescent, I'm, I'm so happy to spend the opportunity with the effervescent Dr. Brady Bouchard. <laughs> I love that, Mike. Yeah, I haven't had enough coffee to use a big word like that. So you have a good afternoon, Mike. Take care. Have a good one. Later. Bye.